Uh, and uh, what's amazing about it is that it shows the, the festival, the tomb sweeping festival, and the many scenes of everyday life. So it's a very celebratory picture. And you can see what life was like at that time, too, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And I think this is Kaifeng in China, uh, is the city. Uh, so I want to ask you how many humans are featured oh, in this wow. picture? That's interesting. <laughs> 120? All right, let's have a look at the answer. Oh, wow, that many! 814 humans. There are also 28 boats, 60 animals, 30 buildings, 20 vehicles, 8 sedan chairs, and 170 trees. Cool. I have to tell you, whoever counted all those <laughs> deserves an award. Too. Well, that, that's a great painting. No wonder people love that painting. What's this all about? Why are they doing that? What's going on here? It's Curious John. What is he curious about today? Taiwan has, so far, been lucky. As public spaces across the world close due to fears about the novel coronavirus, Taiwan remains, mostly, open for business. I'm adding a lot of parentheses here because some places have shut down and pretty much all big public events are on hold. Still, you don't have to look far to find plenty of public institutions that are still open as usual. Book lovers will be pleased to know that among these places is Taiwan's National Central Library, a cavernous but comfy place in downtown Taipei. Though this is not a circulating library, you can't check out books here, there is still a steady stream of patrons, notably students come to study, and researchers from both Taiwan and abroad come to work on their latest papers. Granted, the building is big, but so too is the number of people who come to visit each day. So how is it that a place where so many people gather is still open? After all, not far away in New Taipei, the equally enormous National Taiwan Library has decided to close its doors altogether until the middle of April. What measures are in place to keep staff and patrons safe from disease? The library's director, Ms. Lee, joins us on the line this week with a look at how, even in a crisis like this, it continues to serve the reading public. Ms. Lee says that the National Central Library serves ordinary citizens, but also people in government and academia. Anyone 16 years or older can apply for a library card. Though again, though the library has many online resources, no books can be checked out. Of course, this is a national library we're talking about. And so Ms. Lee says it's no surprise that they have another mission too, to preserve and protect historical documents. If all formats, including e-books, academic journals, and ordinary books are included, Ms. Lee says that the library's collection amounts to 6,500,000 volumes. These include 200,000 volumes collected in the library's special Sinology Center, a section of the library devoted especially to ethnic Chinese studies, largely catering to scholars from overseas. This special collection includes books, journals, and dissertations from all around the world. 
我观察一下，其实影响没有很大，有稍微下跌一点。A recent survey conducted in Taiwan found that even as the local publishing industry suffers, libraries here are thriving like never before. This survey found that across much of Taiwan, the number of people with library cards, the number of active library patrons, and the number of books people are checking out are all significantly up. At least they were before the pandemic began. But Ms. Lee says that the National Central Library is a bit special. Its patron numbers are fairly stable because a lot of people come to do research. This means that trends affecting most other libraries across Taiwan don't have as much of an impact here. The pandemic has seen patron numbers fall a bit, but for the most part, the numbers are holding steady. Even in a time of pandemic, she says, people still need information. This doesn't mean that the library has thrown caution to the wind, though. In early February, a big disinfection operation took place inside the library. Since then, there's been daily disinfection of seating areas, computers, and high-touch surfaces like elevator buttons. Starting in March, all the entrances that are still open have become checkpoints where the temperatures of patrons and staff are checked. All people entering the building have to disinfect their hands with alcohol too. And since the end of March, they have to wear a surgical mask at all times when inside. In addition, the library has stopped issuing passes for guided tours, a service that used to be offered, for instance, to teachers looking to organize a field trip. Special rooms once open for discussions have been closed, and in study areas, acrylic dividers have been placed between desks for patron safety. These dividers have been introduced in a lot of other places too, like rooms equipped with computers for online research. Indoor ventilation has been improved, and in reading rooms, desks have been pulled further apart, and readers no longer face each other. None of these initiatives were imposed on the library from above. Instead, Ms. Lee says library staff themselves came up with these ideas as a way to protect themselves and their patrons and make sure the doors stay open. But what about the books? As we've said more than once already, people can't check the books out, but they're certainly free to touch them. I asked Ms. Lee about this because I recently read that rural libraries in Taiwan's eastern Hualien County have bought special book disinfecting machines to make sure not one page gets contaminated. It seems the National Central Library has been ahead of the curve here. They've already had these kind of machines on site for a while now. She says there's not yet any rule in place requiring their use, but patrons who want to play it safe are free to use them. The National Central Library has no plans to shut down. Ms. Lee says the library will follow the directives of the government, especially its Central Epidemic Command Center. But most cases of COVID-19 here continue to be imported ones, and people found to be sick are quickly put into quarantine. This doesn't exactly mean business as usual. Since the outbreak began, the library has launched an online program that aims to keep at least some patrons staying home. As safe as the library itself may be, so the idea goes, patrons coming in will have to be out and about doing things like taking public transport, where there's a chance of exposure. 
That's why in February, the library put together a list of around 70 recommended books for people to read as the pandemic rages on. These books cover seven categories, including categories like health, but also self-improvement, things you can do to better yourself if you're stuck at home. These books are available online, and they're meant to take people's minds off things while also providing information like tips on how to stay healthy. People can read these books at home without having to go out. The titles include books specially picked out to appeal to kids and to senior citizens, as well as a more general audience. The library has also made online classes available for free. Schools are still open so far, but you never know. And for those who miss coming to the library to hear lectures or attend events, there are links to nine online exhibits available to browse as well. All this may be enough for the general reading public, but what if you need specific information? What if, for instance, you're a professor with a paper to write, or a PhD student whose dissertation still needs to get finished? For these people, the library has introduced two new services. The first is a printing and shipping service. People in need of specific information or specific pages from books can have the library print them out for them and give them to them. In three days, whatever they request is ready to go. They can either come to the library's entrance and pick their documents up without going inside, or if they're willing to pay, they can have the library ship their materials to whatever address they want. But what if what you need is a bit more general, or you don't know where to start looking for it? To help these people, the library has set up a digital reference librarian service. To use this service, add the library's account on popular messaging app LINE. Then, if your question's urgent, you can send it to the account, and reference librarians will see it. If you send your question during opening hours, you can usually get a response within a day. No one needs to meet face-to-face. It certainly looks like Taiwan is a long way from implementing the kind of shutdowns we're seeing in other parts of the world. Our caseload remains relatively mild. But it's clear that the staff at the National Central Library consider their services to be essential. And even as the number of COVID-19 cases here slowly continues to grow, the librarians don't plan on going anywhere. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Listening to Radio Taiwan International. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Stroke of Light, a portrait of Taiwan through the eyes of painters, sculptors, filmmakers, and photographers. Hello and welcome to Stroke of Light. This week, the Mindset Art Center in Taipei City welcomes Christopher Taylor, an English photographer based out of France who has spent the last five years photographing the landscape in Iceland. Now, when I first heard of his globe-trotting journey, I expected to see splendid, expansive landscape captured with vivid, eye-popping colors. But 
when I walked into the Gallery of Mindset Art Center, the photos I see have an aesthetic that is almost the polar opposite of what I expected. All of his photos are in black and white, and they are in square format. Unlike the traditional rectangular format that we see adopted by most other photographers. The subject matter varies. In one frame, we see the shot of a sky where clouds seem to be in the process of dispersing and several birds roam freely in the air. In another frame next to it, we see the surface of sea with uneven waves captured at the height of their movement. In other photos, we see more earthly, everyday locations and items, such as a ray of sunshine that illuminates the inside of a house or the hand of a fisherman holding a couple of fish. Regardless of what the subject matter is, all the photos ooze this peaceful, almost ethereal energy from within the frame. This series of photographs is titled Steinhold. That is the name of a small house located in the far northeast corner of Iceland. The house used to belong to Taylor's wife, who's a native from Iceland, and it was since passed on to them. Taylor took the opportunity and photographed this area of Iceland for five years. During this time, he has met local fishermen, villagers, but what impresses him the most, I think, is the vast and quiet landscape with this expensive energy that entices him to come back again and again, to walk miles at a time to capture that elusive, almost spiritual moment. In the following weeks, we'll talk to Mr. Christopher Tyler and have him explain the stories and thoughts behind the photo. And first, would trace his photographic journey all the way back to the beginning to where it all began for him. Um, you studied zoology mm, in true. university. How did that, how did you went from that to doing analog photography for mm. a living? Where did you study that? No, I, I didn't study photography, so it's just something I just learned myself. Okay. Um, in your own time? Yeah, I mean, like probably lot, lot, like a lot of people, uh, we, we follow... Uh, um, a path in life which, which um, happens a bit by chance I suppose in school um, I had a very good biology teacher and that was a subject which I liked the best at, at school um, and then I went into I did a degree in, in, in zoology and worked in research a little while but for me it was, it was far too specialised a field you know, so it's um, more interested in other things, so I, I stopped after a few years. But photography, um, again, it was a little bit by chance. It was um, something I started doing when I was about 17, 18. Okay. Um, I grew up in a small town on the east coast in England. Um, it's actually a, a tourist resort. Oh. It was a place for uh, industrial workers to, to get a breath of fresh air. So the town itself had little history. It went back about 100 years or so. So industrial workers from the centre of the UK, miners, steel workers and such like, they were often day trippers, uh, go back in the evening. And um, so for me in the summer, it was an opportunity to discern a bit of money. You know? There was a lot of summer work. 
and one of the jobs available was as a photographer. So I just uh, photographed people in the street. Okay. This, this company went back to a time when most people didn't have their own cameras. So I mean, it was just uh, it was more interesting doing that than working in a cafe because you were outside and uh, the hours weren't too long because a lot of these people were day trippers. So uh, this is film photography, of course. So yeah. uh, these, these young uh, people come around on bicycle, click the film. So the images you were taking were developed in a lab and then processed and offered to the potential clients a couple hours later. So they had to be ready the same day. Yeah. Um, so that certainly sounds like a much more interesting and fulfilling job than working in a cafe or... Yeah, I mean, when you're young, it's just, uh, you don't care, it's just a bit of fun, but um, the thing was that one of the people working in the labs, mm -hmm. he showed me photographs that he took for himself in black and white. From? Uh, pictures that he'd taken himself in black and white, because we were working in colour. Sure, okay. And they were just, uh, you know, very... That's all we have time for today. In the following episode, we'll continue to talk to Mr. Taylor and see how he brought the photographic skills that he had honed on the street of London to Iceland. For a Stroke of Light, I'm Jake Chen. Talk to you next week. Pull yourself together already. It's time to feast. Sit down at the table with Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu on Feast Meets West. Hello, welcome to the feast. And this is Ellen Chu. And this is Andrew Ryan. How are you doing today, Ellen Chu? doing pretty good. I'm pretty hungry. You are hungry. Yes, I'm hungry all the time. I know. You say that at the beginning of every show. <laughs> Definitely. But today, you know, because I'm so hungry and I don't like to feel dependent on you all the time. So I brought a chef friend here. You brought your own chef friend. Exactly. I feel I feel kind of excited. I don't you have know, to do I don't cooking. just want to be feeling that sitting here and being fed by you. Sometimes <laughs> I want to be, you know, productive and have some input for this show. Well, why did you cook yourself, Alan Chu? I've been cooking <laughs> and I've been trying to find the right dish to bring to the show. Mm. Not yet. Not yet. Uh-huh. Maybe give me, give me like 20 Five years. years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so instead, in place of you bringing your own dish, you've actually brought a master chef into the studio. Yeah, you know, the person I bring, it has to be a master. I don't mm -hmm. just bring anyone here. Have I brought anyone here yet? Not really. <laughs> Not that I can think of. This might be a first for us. First, right? It's so about it time. has to be super. Mm -hmm. It has to be extraordinary. Mm -hmm. It has to be someone. Not on the planet Earth. Not on the planet Earth. Right. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. I heard that the person you bring into the studio has worked with Gordon Ramsay and other famous chefs. Of course. He's got a 25-year career spanning the globe. Uh-huh. Served as executive chef at top restaurants. Uh-huh. Acted as brand ambassador to many top brands. Yep. He even has his own company, the Stevens Concept Limited, and a new book. This is just like, you know... The tip the of the iceberg. Little part of his bio, okay? Oh, I'm so looking forward to this. Uh, and also looking forward to hearing his time, about his time as a judge and host of MasterChef China. Yeah, you know, I really like to live his life. I would too. You know, we're hiding in a studio, in a radio <laughs> studio, trying to make a show and eat some food. Yeah. 
You want to be doing it on stage, don't I you? I know. I think we need to make the trans, trans uh, what, transformation. We need right. to make the shift into the global stage. Exactly. Maybe but this is step one. I'm sure the setup, you know, our listeners are really excited on who's going to come to our show. And mm. we're going to check our menu today. All right, let's do it. In our very first course, we're going to meet Chef Stephen Liu and find out how he got his start. In our second course, we're going to hear about some of his most memorable experiences. And, of course, in our third and final course, he's agreed to work a little magic. We'll bring a little creativity using some of Taiwan's must-humble local ingredients. That's right. Just like a couple ingredients and he's going to whip something up. Exactly. I am so looking forward to this, Alan Chu. I think we should go straight into our first course. What do okay. you say? All right, let's do it. First course. All righty, our first course. That's right. We'd like to welcome Chef Stephen Liu to the studio. Thank you for coming. Hello, everyone. Alan and Drew. That's so good. Wow. Stephen. Hi. Hi so, you know, Stephen is on the air, and maybe if somebody, some of our listeners live in China, you mm-hmm. know, they have seen Stephen on the show already. I think yeah. so. This is probably your most famous role has been on TV. Uh, I mean, you've, you've been in competitions, you're hosting competitions, you've been a judge for competitions. Yep. Maybe the most famous one is the MasterChef competition? Uh, I've done the MasterChef since 2012 uh-huh. to present a most in total was like 10 seasons 10 seasons wow. yeah, with master chef master chef junior master chef celebrity everything with really with a master chef mm-hmm. wow I mean, that has to be with me you are really known in the show you have the image of being the really tough <laughs> and really strict yeah. master chef right Very dirty one yeah. Really dirty. I remember, like, in one of the show that you told them that they have to slice something into, like, you know, 10 millimeter or something. Onion. Onions. Yeah, that's a basic. That's how we enter into the kitchen. Really? We, we basically start with the slicing. slicing and dicing. 10 millimeter. Can you do that? Mm. I'm challenging you. Okay. So I think most, <laughs> most people probably can do this, but they do it very slowly, right? Yeah, you can do it, actually. That's like I say, it was like. It's only for practice. Mm-hmm. It's the more you practice, the more you get into it. Okay. So you might want to slice the onion. Like, okay, for example, you slice the one piece of onion by daily. Uh-huh. I'm sure after three months, <laughs> you'll be a master chef to right. slice the onion. It's all about practice. Do you enjoy, like, watching other people, like, fail at things or do you oh. like watching the successes what do you what do you like in the kitchen i like to torture them yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, i always call myself uh, you you make your dream i crush your dream <laughs> yes but you know when you see these contestants you know trying to achieve the challenge that you offer them do you see yourself in their position like you know you were once you know a uh, Freshman in the you know culinary world, a sous chef at one point, right? Yeah, it's yeah. true. When I when I look all the contestants, just like a reflect by me, because I was one of them. I'm mm-hmm. even more green of them. Mm. They all got a, like a passion. And they all thirsty to get a, the trophy. Mm-hmm. But back to my time, it's just a job. Yeah. So I don't even know what I'm doing. I do eight hours a day. I do nine hours a day. I'm still play with onion, garlic, chili, all of this. Uh, 
you know, something which is you don't call yourself as a chef. Mm. You just uh, not even helper. You just uh, I'll call myself as a slave. <laughs> slave. Okay. Wow, wow. Wow. What was your first job? I mean, I've done a, a lot of many different jobs. I would say before I, I get into the real F&B, I, I mean, food and beverage, my first, first job was in the American family restaurant. It's called Grandma Nitty's Kitchen. It was famous, which is in Taipei. Mm-hmm. I really think that is the first one American-style mm-hmm. Pure American style breakfast, lunch, and dinner has been served in, yeah. in town. Mm-hmm. Do you know this is like one of the places I went when I first came to Taiwan in 1996? Oh, yeah, yeah, it could be because all the foreigner Lawai and the first yeah. pop into Taiwan. Yes, the first restaurant I need to know apart from McDonald's KFC <laughs> is Grandma Nitty's. If they kitchen. really wanted a American brunch breakfast, mm-hmm. yeah, it would be Grandma Nitty. It's it the only place Nitty. I knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 365. Yeah. Never, never, never stop. Right. Yeah. You went there too, aren't you? She was my landlord. <laughs> I lived right above Grandma Nitty, uh-huh. her store. You're talking about Rainbow, right? Yeah. yeah Rainbow. See, we have all these, you know, memory. Oh my goodness. You know, that it's, is a long time. It's possible in 1996, all three of us were in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Yes. It's very exactly. possible. We're all in the same place. And so now we're doing it again. Is there anything from Grandma Nitty's kitchen that you learned? And you have preserved it in your head and in your professionalism and bring it into your chef world. I didn't focus. <laughs> focus. Yeah, you need to focus and okay. detail mm. and open your mind. And wow. I mean, that's a lot. And patient. You, know, mm-hmm. you need to be very patient. Mm. So are you the type of chef that likes to play around in the kitchen and play with different ingredients. Is this something that you did in the very beginning or is That's this something you learned later? A very good question. That, that, that wasn't happen like uh, when you uh, get into the industry. Mm-hmm. That actually happened after you became a real, real chef. Once you got like a position, you have a spare time and you haven't seen this war, how big it is. You've been well traveling. You, you communicate with different uh, I mean, nationality. Mm-hmm. Then you start pick from there. Because right. I pick my ingredient all from my destination. Mm-hmm. Everywhere I have been, I learn from the local. I appreciate the the way the the way of their work. Mm-hmm. I respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't change the the way they are doing since uh, still mm-hmm. from now. I'm not changing at all. Because, like like you said, mm. it's a journey of you know learning and also becoming a profession and working with different. I mean, owners or you know different restaurant and mm-hmm. different country and culture. You must have picked up a lot of things. So, when is the first time that you really you know feel that you're bold enough? To do something different, adding different spices and ingredients and playing with them. I think after many years, when I left uh, England, then mm-hmm. uh, I moved into the Switzerland. I was stopped over in Switzerland almost a year. I think it's quite boring because uh, every day we are doing the same. We're serving the same. So I start, you know, taking my courage. I moved into the India. Mm. Yeah, that was uh, that was a very big move from mm-hmm. Europe and to. India at that time it was where in India were you? I was in the Bangalore and Bombay okay I'm um, two places mm. and I worked with the I mean number one hotel in in India mm-hmm. it's called Taj so that brought me a lot of a different creativity and were you inspired by the ingredients and the styles of cooking that you saw when you were in India? Uh, I would say curry 
Mm. I mean, over there, they don't cook curry because you, when you say a chef, can you? I want to eat some curry. I said, no, 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 we don't cook curry here. You know, this is we are greatest in India, incredible. We don't cook curry. You, they say all, go to London. Yeah, you, know, you get curry in London. Yeah, it's like a, okay, you want the butter chicken, you go back to England. You know? <laughs> we don't cook butter chicken here. Uh huh. Yeah. But yeah, it must be like the it. spice because it's all about in India, spice. there yeah. are so many different spices, Correct. exotic spices. Correct. Mm. Is that? How you got inspired? My God, that's a that's a. I would say you will never finish your learning in this oldest country because mm-hmm. from north to south, the all the family have a different way to do it. So this is not standardized. This is all about a passion and a life, and they want to feed their families, which is they like invest into their cuisine. Mm-hmm. That's how you get a passion from there. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm lucky when I walk in with that, such a big group. I met a lot of. Um, Co- who call master chef? Mm-hmm. They have a lot, of, a lot of master chef with the with the bread, with the tendril, with the curry. I would say with the spice. Mm-hmm. It's all about like history. Mm. So you have to be stay with them day by day to understanding what are they doing day by day. Then you understanding how the technique coming from the cuisine itself. Mm. Otherwise, you just go there for three hours. You don't know nothing. Mm. You might just make a curry, curry, mm-hmm. just. Just curry, just what the people say, curry. But once once you invest more time to play with them, to live with them, mm-hmm. the all philosophy is coming from their life, mm. the cooking philosophy. Mm. So for you, like cooking is not just about ingredients and foods and and eating. It's it's actually about more like a way of life or a way of. I mean, it's deeper than that, right? Exactly. Like I always share with the junior, I would say cooking is all about passion and love. Mm-hmm. You need to have a passion. You need to have a love. Which the food you make, you'll be great. Mm. Yeah, that's how to be a chef. When do you realize that you had the passion and the love? How old were you? Were you like in your teens mm. or after you started to become a professional chef? A lot of you know, I I don't really know when it was that, but a lot of people say, "Hey, Stephen, you know, you have a talent. Mm-hmm. Everything you get into it doesn't matter cooking or music or whatsoever. You get deep, very." Very seriously, mm. you study, you learn, and you research it. Mm-hmm. You you just want to figure out why was that. Mm. So I guess I have this kind of talent. Mm-hmm. So it's passion. Th- yeah, too, it doesn't yeah. matter which industry I really want to get into. It. Mm-hmm. If I think this is relate with my life, mm-hmm. so I will dig it in. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go into uh, a song that I think is kind of appropriate. It's called Ninja. Because oh. uh, I see you as kind of a ninja of wow. the kitchen. Uh, it's by Jay Cho. And when we come back in just a moment, I want I do want to know a little bit about what it's like to work with Gordon Ramsay and whether or not oh. that had an influence on <laughs> your judging abilities. I know. There are some secrets about him that, you know, we can find out and dig out. Okay? <laughs> All right. That's much more to come when the feast continues. Let's go. 
はいはいはい分けれました Are you listening? <laughs> This is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Second course. All right, back with our second course and sitting with our master chef Stephen. Hello, this is Stephen. Yes. yes, and I really want to know what is it like to work with Gordon Ramsay. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that people ask you this all the time. You're probably tired of the question, but yeah. but I think it can have an influence on you know your own personal style. I'd like to know how you are similar or different from him. I mean, I work with a lot of famous chefs.、Uh, I mean, superstar, Michelin star, any greatest chef in the world.、Um, Gordon is just one of them, well known、mm. uh, from this industry or、mm. out of industry. And people watching him from Hell's Kitchen and Kitchen Nightmare,、mm-hmm. and even Master Chef USA, that's right. And it's nothing different, honestly, from the chef perspective, because all the chef is just like him. Mm. Very nasty and very straightforward. <laughs> and very, oh, yeah, even myself as well, because、uh, we hold a discipline in the kitchen. Because、uh-huh. nothing can be wrong in the one second. Yeah, you have、okay. standards. We have a standard. Can you imagine? You pay like five hundred pound, eight hundred pound per a meal,、mm-hmm. three course. You sit in at this restaurant outside with your girlfriend, your parents, your relative. Then your fish was burned. Your、yeah. steak was overcooked. No way. Yeah. No and way.、Uh, your food was delayed.、Mm. I always mention the customer will not give you any single excuse and、mm-hmm. chance. Yeah. They will even go back to use the social network. Yeah. To share this、mm. disaster experience to their friends.、Mm. So that's the reason to be a chef. We holding a lot of, lot of responsibility on our shoulder. So that's why we are very disciplined and we very straightforward. And Gordon only teach me is about the passion and、mm. focus、mm. and get into the detail, make it perfect. If it's not perfect, don't serve to the customer.、Mm-hmm. If that was you, would you eat? Would you use such as like this unperfect dishes? Yeah, impossible in the plate. Yeah,、mm-hmm. yeah this is very human natural.、Mm-hmm. You pay for it, you get for it.、Mm. Wow. So I mean, the people think he's nasty, and people think he's unreasonable. Which is, I don't, I don't see in that angle. I think he want the best of the best.、Mm-hmm. Mm. He want to train you. You can be unique in the world.、Mm-hmm. So because、mm-hmm. we all have a personality. I think that's very true. You know, from all the chefs that I interviewed, basically they said the same thing. 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if it's not good, you don't serve it. Okay, yeah, you don't it compromise. has to be the best, and you cannot compromise in there. I, I think it's similar in what we do as well. Like we're very nice people usually, but if it's about editing the program or really, if it's about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, I believe I can see that. You know, don't touch your microphone. <laughs> oh, you know, your S is like too too loud. Okay, <laughs> stop that. <laughs> if per- perfectionist is a perfectionist, it's just different fields. Right. So how about like hosting or like communicating? Is that something that that you maybe learned by? watching other chefs or is that something you figured out in your own uh, no chef is very less talk yeah he's only talking about then chicken, why are you chicken so fish, talkative uh, <laughs> yeah. I only sweat to the people if you talk, ask me to sweat people I can you know using a 10 kilometer longer dirty warren and in the kitchen too. <laughs> but you know for you Stephen it seems like it's so natural because like we said earlier you know not every chef is articulate but you're not only articulate you feel very at ease in front of a microphone or in front of the camera I would say uh, I really appreciate I got an opportunity to work with a master chef that mm. master chef gave to me uh, this talent I think mm. and I use this strength to, to watch him to watching all the hosts and I mean the the crews mm-hmm. and even the previous Gordon Ramsay show or Master Chef show, which is I pick up from there. So I I think what should I talk? Mm-hmm. You need to think. Then that's uh, always uh, the drama. Mm-hmm. You need to have a drama, but you also need to have a professional to mm-hmm. blend with. All right, we're gonna go into another song, and this song is called. Uh, so like a conductor so oh, sometimes right. a chef is like a conductor right? yeah cool. in the kitchen he yeah. is yeah or like a general yeah yes. general he's a bunch of army with the troops Military. yeah yes. right alright this is by Ren Shenxi when we come back in just a moment uh, Chef Stephen Liu is going to make a very simple dish for us right we're going to sample right here in the studio very simple possibly you guys can make it in your home oh okay? definitely alright okay. looking forward to it much more to come when the feast continues 人生在寂浪能让你想起轻易可肩膀又转转画出美丽辉煌人生在起浪
，愿让你想起情的靠肩膀，小吉他抱在我胸膛，左弯弯右转转，画出优雅形状，相爱要忘了紧张，只会爱的方向从此不再莽撞，相信也不再流浪。转转，画出美丽辉煌。我们要震撼全场，只会爱去实现所有美好想象。你让快乐音浪太响，幸福大肆交响。我不是小巴。又转转，画出优雅形状。相爱要忘了紧张，只会爱的方向从此不再莽撞，相信也不再流浪。左弯弯，右转转，画出美丽辉煌。我们要震撼全场，只会。去实现所有美好想象，你让快乐音浪太强，幸福大肆交响。You're listening to Feast Meets West. Third chorus. Okay, we're back in the third course, and the timer is upon us because the、uh, studio computers have to shut down in exactly five、wow. minutes. Okay. So this is like a competition for you, right? <laughs> okay. So this is the Master Chef in RTI. All and right. Today, what are you going to make for us today? Oh, today. Ex- explain it first, and then we'll do it. Oh, it's very simple, you know. Which is、uh, I don't know where where I came from this idea, but just、uh-huh. you know, I like to eat this.、Uh, Every time when I come back to Taiwan, you know this is must be have to be is a braised pork. Braised braised pork.、Oh. This is like a stew. Uh huh. So you always pour on top of the rice. Okay, we、I'm、call、sure、that lu rou fan. Lu rou fan.、Right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that a lot of expat people who's coming to Taiwan and local friend、mm-hmm. will introduce these、uh, very、uh, friendly dishes. It's very savory and very delicious. It's、exactly. like comfort、mm-hmm. food. Yeah, it's very comfort, very cheap, and very easy to get it. And all the shops all have.、Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter good or bad, but it's gonna feed you.、Mm-hmm. So I like this dish. And I make this dish.、Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter which country it is. I、mm-hmm. share with a friend. But one day, I think I was in the lab or home. I can't remember. I opened my fridge. I saw the leftover peanut butter,、mm-hmm. which is very simple peanut、mm-hmm. butter. And I would just scoop one or two、uh, peanut butter into my this、uh, braised pork.、Mm-hmm. It came out with an unforgettable memory. It's、uh-huh. like a wow. <laughs> This is good. This is really good, and no one thought about that. Is that's a braised pork with a peanut butter? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's very easy. You know, I, I'm sure all the family who you have the kids without without the kids,、mm-hmm. you have the peanut butter.、Mm-hmm. Yes.、Yeah. Right. You know, when he first told me this this recipe, I felt that you know、that's、it was like、joke. kids playing with their you know meal. <laughs> right. And I don't know. I haven't tried it yet. 
Well, the clock is ticking. I have uh, right here, I have a braised pork oh, on you, rice. You, you did? I have it oh, here, and I good. have a little jar of peanut butter. Okay. I'm going to bring it out, and we're going to cool. follow you down to a microwave, and we're going to cook it up, yeah? Definitely. Is microwave okay? No, I've always, I, definitely. I, I know the chefs usually look down on microwaves, but today... I, I okay. use in everything can cook. <laughs> okay. Everything that can everything. heat. All right, let's do it. I've never used this microwave. So what are we doing? You want to tell us again? This is uh, peanut, peanut butter. Peanut butter. Peanut butter, yeah. So you get like a little liquid mm-hmm. and melt. Then you have your braised pork sauce. Okay. It's ready. You just blend together. Uh, so Ellen Chu, what do you have there? This is our braised pork. Okay. okay, this is the most famous Hu Shu Zhang braised pork. Braised pork on rice. Okay. And we're going to heat it up and pour it on top. This and is something we've never done before. We're supposed to blend it. It's very, I don't know, you know, just thinking of the two combination, I would never think of putting them together. <laughs> but. But it's going to come out nice and soft and like juicy, creamy. right? Creamy. It'll be more creamy. Okay. And warm. The flavor from the peanut butter itself, half so half, uh, half salty, half sweet. Half it's salty, just right. sweet. It's just right for this uh, greasy, oily, fresh mm. milk. Oh. That really clean the fat. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Here. And if you're wondering what the noise is, this is the RTI cafeteria here. <laughs> oh yeah, look at that. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So, no, you smell the peanut butter, yeah. right? Yeah. It's really nice, huh? So, just go this down. So the braised pork goes into the peanut butter. Yeah. The best way is well the rice. So, just mix it up. Okay, so then I heat it up just a little bit. Okay. A little hot. It need to be hot. Okay, so how long are we uh, microwaving this for? 30 seconds? 30 seconds or one minute. It depends how big of your rice. Okay, all right. What do you think, Alan Chu? I think, I still think it's a joke, okay? <laughs> but we'll see, because this is from the master chef, mm-hmm. right? I like this. Done this, it's my big nasty stove for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go. All right, let's head back up. Studio 6A, we gotta run. Go, Ellen. Ooh. Time's running out. Here we go. Yeah. Are you nervous? The last five minutes! Oh, let's see. We'll look at the clock. Where's the clock? Oh, we gotta run. Got one minute left. So if you've been watching the clock like we have, you'll know that our five minutes are up. But don't worry, Chef Stephen Leo, he made it just in time. But you're going to have to tune in again next week on Feast Feeds West to find out how this amazing dish tastes. Again, this is braised pork on rice with peanut butter, some humble ingredients cooked in the humblest of cooking utensils, a microwave, something that's easy enough that you could make it at home. But how's it going to taste? Again, we'll find out next week. 
On behalf of Ellen Chu, I'm Andrew Ryan. Thanks for listening to Feast Meets West. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.